Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. One way that the current pandemic has affected farriers is the inability to attend horseshoeing gatherings. There are very few small association clinics being held, and larger farrier events seem canceled altogether into the foreseeable future. I think these gatherings are important for education and networking with your peers. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to attend the American Farriers Association annual clinic, which was probably the last farrier gathering held before things really started changing. And a highlight for me at the convention was to sit down and talk with International Horseshoeing Hall of Fame member, Terry Stever. In this episode, I talked with Terry about his career, the most important trait required to be a successful farrier, and how he's seen the quarter horse change over the decades. We'll open this episode with Terry talking about how he gained an interest in horses and farriery. Well, my father come back from a World War II, and my father had horses, my grandfather had horses, and so on and so forth, and I was just brought up with horses, you know, and lived in farm country and one thing and another course. After guys came back from uh, World War II, you know, our country was on the upswing and everything was uh, was going real good. So, you know, the horses were a popular thing. We uh, had uh, all the uh, old-time westerns with Tom X and this and that and the other thing, and it was just kind of one of them things that a lot of people got into. Horses at that particular time were around the farms and uh, just, I don't know, just was born, kind of born into it. Yeah, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in a little town by the name of Shenango Bridge, which is uh, north of Binghamton, New York, and probably about uh, 50 minutes to an hour south of Syracuse, New York. Okay. How did you get into horseshoeing? Well, we used to uh, used to go ahead and have a guy come in the uh, summertime to do horses for us, and I uh, got interested in it and watched it and one thing or another and would be around him, and that kind of is what got me into it and of course when I was uh, 11 years old I went ahead and uh, lived out in farm country in the dairy country and went ahead and had a friend down the street that had a paper route course when you was a kid you know you was always figuring trying to figure out how to make some money and so on and so forth and uh, ended up with this older boy was getting rid of the paper route and had about uh, 42 customers on about 12 or 13 miles and kind of told a little fib about my uh, age because you wasn't supposed to go to work for the paper company until you was 12. And of course they went ahead and took me because there wasn't no other kid in the area that was even interested in it. And it was either ride a bike, ride a horse, uh, catch a tractor when the guy's going up the road with a manure spreader or whatever the case may be. Most of it was walk in the winter time. And it wasn't a big paying job, but it was big for me at that time, work all week long. and get maybe about four dollars four and a half if somebody go ahead and gave you a tip so i just did that and uh and uh, little by little by little rode horses and showed horses and uh you know it was just part of me and then when i really got into horseshoeing i got i went into service in 63 and got out of the service and did three tours in uh, southeast asia and was qualified on three different aircraft in the air force as far as an aircraft mechanic ended up as a crew chief when I got out, I was uh, Pratt Whitney had hired me out of my hometown to go ahead and go out there, and that's how I ended up in Connecticut. Anyway, I was riding horses, and I worked a second shift, so during the daytime, I got involved with people that had horses and was training horses for uh, different people, and uh, that's how I met George Fitzgerald, and basically 
thought it was real hard to get a horseshoe back in those days. So I thought, well, God, if I can learn how to do that, I can install it in my training part, and it'd be one more thing to where I don't have to worry about getting somebody to shoe my horses. And George said, go ahead and uh, go to horseshoeing school, and you'll be of use to me when I come back. Well, George had already had some other guys working for him, one thing or another, and I went with him a few times, and little by little we uh, built a relationship, and then I ended up apprenticing with a fellow by the name of Bill Brown, and then we started the uh, Connecticut Horseshoers Association in 72, I think it was. I ended up as one of the board of directors, and all the while that that was, George was the president, and uh, Mikey Weaver, Johnny Jenks, uh, Joe and Johnny Chris were directors, and you know, I just got involved as a group of horseshoeing guys, and the next thing you know, it just bloomed from there. One of the stories I've liked that, you, that you've told me is when you finally didn't decide to go to horseshoeing full-time, how you let, let your company know you were leaving. Like I said, I was working for Pratt Whitney. I was working on a second shift. Well, because I had had three years of field experience with, uh, with jet aircraft and whatnot and overseas and whatnot, well, they hired me as a quality control inspector. I was probably ahead of a lot of guys as far as knowledge in the field. So they had big plans for me. The next thing you know, in less than a year, I was on, uh, on the first shift and one thing or another, but it was just in a factory and too much of a boring job for me and and I I'd get done with going ahead and uh, working for them during the day and all I had my mind on was horses, 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 horses. I was getting more involved and that was about the time when I met George and whatnot and uh, and he was hard to get a hold of to go ahead and take care of my animals that I was working with. Anyway, when I finally decided to go ahead and go to horseshoeing school, I went ahead and sold a, a two-year-old stud that I had. I went ahead and sold a uh, 29 Model A that I'd built in between trips to uh, Southeast Asia when I'd come back to my home duty station in Glasgow, Montana. You know, you're way up in the middle of Montana. There was nothing to do. Right. We were uh, about 80 miles from town. I went ahead and uh, walked into the lead man one day and I said, geez, I says, I uh, want to go ahead and give you my notice. And he says, God, he says, you hadn't been here long enough to go ahead and, and get a vacation. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm not wanting a vacation. I says, I want to go ahead and terminate. It was just, there was too much hanging around to where, you know, you was bored. If you stayed busy all the while, if I had a busy day and, and it depended on what department you worked in, you know, I shifted all around all the departments in the manufacturing and through the tests, and I'd been through tests in, in the service and whatnot. He said, well, you're gonna have to go up there and see the supervisor for this, this is my lead man. So anyway, he makes an appointment. I go up and go up and knock on the door and go in the office and he says, Steve, what can I do for you? So I said, Mr. Marin, I said, I wanted to give you my uh, notification. He says, nah, and he hit me with the same thing about, uh, well, you haven't been here long enough for a vacation. And I said, well, I'm not wanting to go ahead and take a vacation. He says, I said, I want to give you my notice that I'm going to terminate. Well, he was sitting at a big desk like this, one of them big desks in his office and whatnot. And he always had a little stogie in his mouth, a cigar. Sometimes it was that long. Sometimes it was pretty short. And he gets, he was a stocky fella. And termination, he says, he gets up out of his desk. He walks around. He comes up and he gets about this far from my face with that stogie and he's got it burned. He's lit it when he come around the corner and I can smell his breath. And he says, son, he says, let me tell you this. He says, horses are out. 
and the airplanes are in after I told him I wanted to be a horseshoer <laughs> and wanted me to go down and see a fellow by the name of Perry Gibhart that worked in the turbine section and it was a big factory I mean huge you know like this building here so you know to go to off down to another section it was a long walk like walking from here to the other end of this building and uh, of course I had already knew who Perry Gibhart was through the horses and the horse shows and all that kind of stuff and I told him, he told me I was crazy, and I never went down there to see Perry Gibbard. I'd made my mind up what I was going to do, and just went ahead, and when the day came, I was gone. I think some people who are listening might be in that area where they're maybe shooing a little bit on the weekend or in the evenings, thinking about, can I do this full-time? Can I, can I make the transition where I make horseshoeing my full-time career? What, what advice do you have for them? Well, my advice to them is just like anything else in life. If you go ahead and got a girl that you turn around and really think a lot of and you think that you're compatible and one thing or another, it's all about commitment. It's going ahead and making your making your head up that you're going to be whatever you're going to be and then commit to it and just go through it. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, and, and just because you have downs, don't quit. Just go ahead and go through it and uh, believe that the good Lord is going to help you go ahead and carry through and be a good person when you're all done. So when you made it your career and you, you went full-time, what type of horses did you start out on? Everything. 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 I got at that time, you know, it was like anything else. You didn't have a whole lot of specialization in those days. Whatever they threw at you, you learned how to go ahead and do. You learned how to do mortgage. You learned how to do uh, Arabian horse. You learned how to make horseshoes because the horseshoes that were on the market at that particular time were uh, Phoenix horseshoes and diamonds for the most part. That's really what got me into go ahead and making handmade shoes. Of course, when you went to horseshoeing school, they taught you how to make a horseshoe and where your skills went after that were all all dependent on yourself on how much you wanted to go ahead and commit to it. So if you went out and shot horses every day and you weren't happy with what you'd done and you were, uh, of course, like I said, I was involved in quality control and uh, quality control was a big thing. From the time I was a child, my father was a real, real fussy kind of a person. And, you know, you could go ahead and have a chore to do. And if the chore wasn't done right, well, you didn't do a piece of it again. You went ahead and done the whole thing again. And I was just brought up to pay attention to details. If you didn't pay attention to the small details, everybody pays attention to the big details. But the small details are the ones that differ whether you've got quality or whether you don't have quality. Is that what you really think started separating you and, and helping you, you know, look at the horse, look at the foot to, to help help the horse? Well, it's, uh, you know, when you're young, there's parts of this business that uh, you don't think about when you're doing, uh, doing backyard horses, but, you know, you can look at any job that you do, no matter how much a perfectionist you are, you can look at it and you're going to find something that you don't like about it. You know, even if it looks perfect to everybody else, it necessarily isn't always perfect to yourself. So you're always you're always trying to go ahead and be your own worst critic in, in life. When you look at your work, how do you evaluate it now? It's the same thing as it was back then. Listen to other people turn around and say it's real, real good, but then I, uh, then I look at my own work, I can always find a flaw in it, yeah. you know? You know, often farriers will say there's no such thing as the perfect shoeing job. There's something you always do different. But I think to some degree, you could always be overly critical of your own work. I guess what, what do you define as that job that you're happy with, but, but you know, you still find something you might do differently? 
the job that I'm happy with is, is to go ahead and understand what the movement is in a horse and have him move into the best of his capabilities. But it's being able to understand what a good moving horse is to a bad moving horse and whether you got anywhere. If you scale horses from a one to a 10, they're gonna be somewhere between that. Ones we don't work on, twos we don't work on, although there's been a time in my life to where I did ones and twos. You know, to where they're just kind of a trail horse, they're nothing, there's nothing pretty about them, but yet the person that has them loves them and they, they're still gonna pay you to go ahead and work on them. Backyard horses, trail horses, and so on and so forth. But I was brought up to where Look at a $500 horse or a $100 horse the same as you look at a million dollar horse and do the same job on this horse down here because this horse down here, if he's got a real fancy chewing job on him, there's liable to be somebody in the horse show world or somebody that's, that's got more money than this person over here. And when they look at that, they're going to ask the question, well, who, who did that horse? pretty cells. You got to go ahead and develop pretty, but you got to go ahead and develop movement along with it. And I think when you're brought up to where you ride horses and train horses, you understand movement, what it takes to go ahead and win in a, uh, in a show ring, you, uh, you go ahead and also know when you're riding a horse, whether it's right or wrong, and you start learning how to adjust different things. There's a lot of guys that are real good horseshoers that never done anything, but, uh, maybe ride a trail horse or just uh, pleasure riding and that type of thing, but don't really understand what they, what they do when they correct a horse for movement as far as in show horses. Soundness is really what we're wanting to create all the while. There's what I want to create. I want to create a sound horse that's gonna, if he's a five mover, make sure you shoe him to a five mover. If he's an eight mover, go ahead and, and shoe him to an eight mover. And if you shoe him to the best job that he can have on him, you're gonna create, you're gonna go ahead and create a comfort situation where you're gonna be able to move to the best of his ability. What advice do you have for, for gaining that eye, gaining that knowledge about how a horse should move? Well, it all comes down to balance. All comes down to balance, you know, Balance in a, in a horse, when you profile a horse, if he's got balance and he's got correct legs and his legs are put on him right and all the, the, the uh, lines go ahead and match up, that horse is going to go ahead and, and have the possibility of going ahead and being a good, good mover. If you've got a horse that uh, is straight up and down in his front legs or he's got real long passes and is, uh, he's not going to be the mover that you want to go ahead and get whatever your job is, you know, you, you different disciplines are going to go ahead and demand different types of movements also. Yeah. Is it time invested uh, going to shows, watching that? Does oh, that help? Man, yeah, it's all about watching. You gotta, you gotta watch the horse when he comes to you. You gotta watch the horse when he walks away from you. You gotta, you just have to pay attention to everything about the horse. You can feel different things when he's underneath, when you're underneath him, whether he's comfortable with you being underneath him. He's not comfortable underneath you. He's either, he's either not comfortable with himself or he's uh, got a situation that isn't broke to go ahead and work on. You know, back when we, uh, back when we started out shoeing horses, we didn't have a veterinarian around every corner to go ahead and uh, pump a drug in him. We didn't have what those guys out there were doing. You had to learn how to go ahead and shoe horses and get along with bad horses. You had to know how to fix bad horses. 
one of my attributes probably for me and I bought a uh, set of books when I was about 12 years old that were produced by a fella in uh, Ohio and they were called Professor Barry horseshoeing books and whatnot. He had a, a along with that set you got a uh, a set of books they're little thin books and they uh, went ahead and had a thing on uh, breeding. They had a set on uh, horsemanship for Western horses. They had horsemanship for English type of horses. They had a deal for uh, saddle horses and so on and so forth. Well, in book two, it turned around and covered horseshoeing. It went ahead and uh, showed you how to put a, uh, four different types of uh, war brows on horses and it taught you how to go ahead and read the uh, different types of heads and different types of eyes and so on and so forth to where when you saw a horse with this particular structure you uh, learned that uh, if you looked at that horse yeah he's probably be a little bit high stronger this one's allowed to be a little bit dead or maybe one's pig-eyed one of them's uh, a little bit a uh, little bit worry-eyed you know what I mean or his ears are back and you just learn how to read horses and uh, you know, we used to go ahead and hang front legs on a horse, you know, and hang a leg up and let them learn to stand on their own. We uh, end up tying up hind legs and different things like that. Those were the things that we had for drugs to go ahead and we taught horses to go ahead and stand while they were shoeing, you know, and it was just a part of it that, uh, that you, had, you, you end up learning to get your job done. Yeah, it's a different time now with, oh, yeah. with everything available. You know, and here's the problem with this. If those were a set of show horses that you were doing out there today, and you go ahead and start these horses off, well, we got a Wheeland and a Wheeland, he's a little bit of a problem. Instead of taking them out there and, and teaching them horses how to go ahead and accept a horseshoe or accept a veterinarian or accept uh, a horse trainer, if you didn't go ahead and teach them how to go ahead and behave, Wheelings, you can go ahead and bull them around. You can handle them. But when they become yearlings, when they become two-year-olds, when they become three-year-olds, now all of a sudden we're getting something every year that's bigger and stronger, bigger and stronger. There comes a time in your life to where now we can't bull them things around. We can't throw them up against the wall and, and muscle our way through them. Now we've got to have horses stand. And if we start them things off with drugs to go ahead and make them behave, one day they become a show horse. Now all of a sudden we get to a horse show and, and uh, we can't go ahead and drug them because the horse has got a show today or show tomorrow or show in two days or show in three days and the drugs aren't out of the system and if they go ahead and get tested right away now we're disqualified as a, as a uh, horse show person and that's what happens. They start a lot of these things off with, with drugs they show up the horse show to where they've lost a shoe or their horse, the horseshoe didn't show up to go ahead and, uh, and get that horse shod. They bring them to the horse show. A lot of times they'll leave them to, leave them to do it the horse show because maybe so-and-so over here has got a reputation that he's a little bit better than the guy we got at home and so on and so forth. They show up at the horse show, and all of a sudden now you got uh, an animal that uh, doesn't like a horseshoe, and he's jerking you all over the place, and he's used to go ahead and put the dope in him, and you can't handle him at the horse show. So if you don't break horses when they're young to go ahead and accept a horseshoe, and they get to the horse show, now we've got a problem. So I'm, I, I don't like to drug horse. I'd rather teach a horse how to go ahead and uh, 
and uh, get along with a horseshoe, and it's not that difficult situation, not of a difficult situation. Why do you think that that change is it just the you know the drug makes it easier? It's the easier route Quicker, to go. Faster. Yeah. What advice do you have about not necessarily those horses in particular, but any bad horse? I think there's always that temptation of having to push through it, especially when you you're young and starting out and trying to build. A career, it's it's tough to turn down clients. But what advice do you have for working with untrained or rambunctious horses, whatever well, we want to call them? If you're working in uh, higher quality barns, you're working with a horse trainer. You can go ahead and if if he doesn't know how to do it, you can go ahead and teach them how to do it. I've taught lots and lots of guys how to go ahead and teach a horse with a one-legged hobble, whether in in the front legs to where eventually they teach themselves that they can't fight themselves and they'll go ahead and uh, it'll take you probably 10 or 15 minutes and, and the next thing you know you can go over there and pick his legs up and so on and so forth there's other ways to go ahead and do it but it's putting the time in people love to ride horses people hate to pick feet they hate to pick feet because that's not an enjoyable situation the more people handle feet in their barn and so on and so forth, but if they got a horse that challenges them and takes their, takes their leg away from them or fights them behind or so on and so forth, well, he still rides good. We leave that alone. Now, years ago, I used to, uh, when I worked with Bill Brown, we did a couple of stables where every springtime we'd get uh, two tractor trailer loads of uh, horses in to go ahead and sell in the springtime. And a lot of those horses came out of Iowa, they came out of uh, Nebraska, they came out of all them cowboy countries out there, and they sold through sales. They ship them back in the East Coast, and them guys would go ahead and sell them. And a lot of those horses came back with big old platter feet and never been shod and so on and so forth. Did they ride good? They rode great. But they uh, kind of been cowboy handling and so on and so forth. Some of the horses you could go ahead and work on real good. Other horses, somebody neglect them or the horse was a little bit tough. So, well, we're breaking the ride. Hell, he's all right. You know, and it's just uh, a situation you have to get with somebody that can show you how to do those things. Train horses to get underneath them. And some of it's just patience. It's taking time, you know. Yeah, not rushing through the day. and Exactly. Sure, sure. But, the, you know, getting around people who can teach you those things, you mentioned some of those names, Brown and, uh, of course, George and Joey Johnny. What do you think in terms of mentorship, in terms, how does it benefit you? You know, how do you go out and find someone that you can work with and, and learn from? Well, there'll be somebody in there, it don't matter where you go, there'll be somebody in every area. I think it's, it's it, if you want to find the, uh, the dog in the bush, you're going to go ahead and beat the bushes. You know, you're going to go ahead and ask people, and it all comes down to communication. Hey, you're in the communication business. If you don't go ahead and, if you didn't walk up to me and communicate with me, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now. So that's that's the basics. It's all uh, going ahead and being able to uh, communicate with people. And we just been out here and watched hundreds of guys going ahead and communicating with one another to go ahead and change their skill level. When I was brought up, guys were tough about handing out secrets and this and that and the other thing you know it didn't work that way it's just been in the last probably 25 or 30 years to where it's gotten more and more and more uh, if a young man can't learn how to shoe horses in this day and age between the horseshoeing schools and all the clinics and all the uh the opportunities are out there, the opportunities are everywhere and probably one of the biggest areas that they've got the opportunity is in what 
the Ferry's Journal. The Ferry's Journal communicates with so many people from one end of the country to the other. It doesn't matter if it's north, south, east, or west. If you're smart enough to go ahead and spend a little money or get in, involved in, a, in an organization, there's pretty much a statewide organization in every state. There's a, a national organization. There's a, a half a dozen other organizations, everything from the AP. Uh, PF to the NEAEP to the American Farriers Association and so on and so forth to where if a man is really serious about it, it all comes down to commit. If you want to commit to whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a job being a mechanic or a job going ahead and, uh, and doing what you do, look at the hours you go ahead and put into your job. And the only reason you put those hours in is because you're committed. What, what do you think changed from back then when you're starting out, guys were more protective of information and now they're, you know, I, it's less restrictive about that. Why, why do you think that changed? Well, I think it changed in every avenue of life. Technology changed a lot of it. Uh, airplanes changed a lot of it. We go back to the story that I just told you about. I walked in there and I said, uh, I said to my supervisor, and he said, what are you going to do? He come up to me and what did he say? Horses are out, airplanes are in. We were going through that phase to where people thought of horses as uh, field horses and didn't realize that most people in that particular time weren't aware of the uh, recreational activities of horses. And little by little by little, the recreational part of it has gone ahead and turned into the business part of it. How do we turn around and take companies like Capo Manufacturing Company, St. Croix, uh, Diamond, so on and so forth, things that have been uh, American-made products for years and years and years. We stand there, well, we can't make money in it anymore, and people from Europe can come over, buy our products, go ahead and ship them all over the world and have them made wherever, and somehow they got to be making money in it because they've been in business for how long? and they're still going ahead and, and, and compete. You walk into that marketplace today and you look at the amount of products that are out there to go ahead and help somebody, everybody is coming up with a new idea every day. And that's just because they turn around and study the business and they think, oh, there's a need for this and need for that. Some of it has a need for it, and then the next thing you know, we've got a copycat, right? <laughs> One person comes out with a product, and the next thing you know, oh, God, that works real good. I'm going to make that, that product, and so on and so forth. It's the same way when you go ahead and go all the way back when I started shoeing horses. I wanted to copy somebody that was better than me. So I find that person that's better than me. He may not want to show you something, but I'll tell you what. Back in the old days, if I walked up there, if I seen George at a place, I'd pull over to the side of the road, and I don't care if I had four or five clients that I had to get through for the rest of the day. If I could stand there and watch him shoe a, shoe a horse or a hackney pony or whatever it was all the way through, I'd go to horse shows, and there'd be Johnny and Joe Chris there, or there'd be George, or there'd be Bill, or there'd be this guy or that guy. It's all about going ahead and putting the extra mile in and going to those horse shows and watching people. What do you think's the most important lesson that you've learned from George Fitzgerald? Probably be committed to it. Always back to commitment. How, how do you balance that of, you know, commitment versus... I haven't figured that out yet. As far as balance it, 
you know what? When you get really, really committed to something, sometimes it, 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 it's like a disease inside of you. It's like you just can't get enough of it. You can't get enough of it. It's like having a good ice cream cone. Instead of having one of them, you've got to have five of them. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden you, uh, you get sick of your stomach because you ate five of them. And it's the same thing with, with whatever you get committed in. If you're married, you're going to go ahead and sacrifice time with somebody that you, you had committed to through a marriage situation and you're married to your business and you think well the more time i put into my business we're both going to benefit from it but usually unless you've got a very understanding person on the other side of it eventually they get sick of you coming home late every day after they've had supper waiting for you at five o'clock and you don't get home until nine and all of a sudden you know those kind of things you 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 find a balance and and Everybody does it a little bit different. If you got somebody that's walking and doing the benefit and they're they're satisfied with it, so it just you know, I don't know as I've figured that out to tell you the truth, other than well you you gotta go ahead and have a the same compassion for the person that you're with is the compassion that you got for your business. My daughter, I've only got one child, my daughter probably got sacrificed a lot because I was gone, but I brought her with me a lot when she was young, and then all of a sudden they get in school and whatnot. You can't do it because they've got a commitment, and it's a balancing act between all of it, you know? Yeah, I think it's, it's being mindful and realizing there's going to be peaks Very and true. valleys. How did you start getting more involved with quarter horses? Well, I, my, my folks started in the quarter horses in 1955, little by little. I mean, that's where my heart was, although... When I got out of horseshoeing school, I shot anything that was going to go ahead and make money or trim it. Heck, I can remember trimming ponies in snow that deep and uh, putting shoes on in snow. I started, uh, when I first came out of horseshoeing school, I was shoeing out of a 1964 Pontiac Bonneville convertible, carrying my stuff in the back of a trunk. Shot out of that for probably a year and a half, and then I uh, was shoeing some hackney ponies for a fellow by the name of Buddy Braun, and he was in the auto body business, and he'd buy trucks and cars and one thing or another at the auction, go ahead and fix them up, and he bought a little yellow half-ton step-side pickup truck and fixed it all up, and I was up there shoeing hackney ponies one day. He said, God, he said, I got a truck down there you might be interested in. So I looked at the truck, and it wasn't really ideal what I wanted, but it did have a bed in the back, and it was all fixed up and looked pretty, and it was had uh, three or four years of age on it. I said, well, how will you trade me for that Pontiac convertible? And I don't know, we worked out an arrangement, and I drove out of there with the truck, and he ended up having the uh, Pontiac. Now, if I had that Pontiac today, all fixed up as a classic car would be worth a lot of money, but, yeah. you know. When was your first Quarter Horse Congress? 1970. Well, I kind of got, uh, got into that by uh, a fellow that uh, turned me on to uh, Al Pinson's Horseshoeing School that had gone there the same year that Reggie Kessler did and, uh, and uh, Jack Miller did, a fellow by the name of Blue Lanham. And... Uh, he turned me on to that, and he was a horse trainer. He kind of didn't shoe horses, but he was into, into horse training and was originally from out there in uh, Colorado and met a girl with a lot of money at a ski trip. He was working at rodeo horse and all that kind of stuff up in uh, Wyoming, and he met her at a ski slope, and they ended up getting married, and 
her folks had a lot of money and uh, they moved back east and bought a farm and that's how the coat horse business for him started and I uh, I don't know, I just always drawed the horses, went to horse shows and rode horses and, and so on and so forth and it just, uh, I don't know, I look back at it and it's kind of a blur. How, how has the quarter horse changed since since 1970? We got five breeds in the breed now. If I was to go ahead and put, whether they be an English horse, whether they be a reining horse, whether they be a, a halter horse, whether they be a pleasure horse, if we, I was to go ahead and stick all of those, those different horses out in the pasture to define them as a quarter horse, the structures are totally different because the English horses and the jumping horse, they've gone ahead and they bred them big and, uh, you know, your, uh, your old typical type quarter horse is uh, like your cutting horses, your reining horses, and that was what a quarter horse is. The definition of a quarter horse today, to go ahead and give it the old definition, there's too many horses that are totally different than that, you know? Used to be a, a big quarter horse was 15-2. Now we got big quarter horses that are standing 18 hands. So if it was standing out in a pasture somewhere, you drove by, you turn around and think, well, that's a, a thoroughbred or warm blood or whatever the case may be, but yet it's a, it's a, a quarter horse. You know, we got into artificial breeding and ship semen and so on and so forth. I think it's, uh, over the years, I think it's hurt the quarter horse industry a lot. How how's it affected the feet? We breed winners, but we don't breed confirmation. I don't think it's affected the feet that much. We, we have a, a different type of horse. When we had the original type of quarter horse, it was pretty much a smaller footed, tight footed kind of a horse. Now we've got horses that'll wear size three shoes for crying out loud in some of them, in the big bred horses, but well, fixing feet is fixing feet. We probably have a few more problems on, on some of that, only because we've got a whole lot of different breeds mixed into it. We've been allowed to go ahead and cross quarter horses with thoroughbreds and little by little by little, some of the stuff has got weaker. Well, the reason it's got weaker is when they, when they got into the English market where the English market was a big push, we started, we started thinking, well, big is what we need to go ahead and breed. So instead of going out there and buying a quality thoroughbred, which would have cost you thousands of dollars, we went to horse sales and we bought horses that were broke down on the track. We bought mares that turned around and couldn't run fast. We had confirmational problems and so on and so forth. And individuals went ahead and bred them thinking because we're going to get big, we're going to get the whole package, but the whole package didn't come with it. Those were horses that failed in their own individual breed, and we brought them into our breed and crossed them with good quarter horses that had good legs, and we got the other side of it that came out of it. What are the typical challenges you're seeing with them now? I don't really see that many challenges with them myself. I think, uh, I think over the years you solve a lot of problems. You solve problems because now there's so many things that are shared amongst people that go ahead and, uh, you know, whether it's white line disease or whatever the case may be, we, we just got a better understanding of a whole lot of different problems with things. And over the, over the years, you learn how to go ahead and deal with these issues and what it takes to go ahead and fix them. And there's this guy that 
10 states away that you can communicate with if you get out mm -hmm. and, and come to uh, places like we're at right now to where you uh, see things. You know, it's all about circulation. It's all about mix and mingle. It's all about getting involved. Who, who are some of the, uh, the names at the Quarter Horse Congress when you started going there? Well, Matlock Rose. I'll give you a classic example. I'm shooing the World Show down there one year, and of course, when I went through shoeing school in Grapevine, Texas at Al Pinson's, every weekend that I got a chance as a young, in my early 20s, 23 years old, 24 years old, to go ahead and uh, take it. Matlock Rose was up in, Gra in uh, Gainesville, and I was down in uh, Grapevine. It was about, oh, maybe an hour and a half or two hours, and at that time, everything was all country. They hadn't even built the uh, DFW airport. I, when I went to horseshoeing school, I flew into Love Field. Al Pinson came over and picked me up, and hey, here's where we're going to go ahead and uh, have the new airport, and so on and so forth. Well, there was a couple of boys from Louisiana that you get buddied up with. I flew in there. They drove up there. They had trucks, and they were into showing horses and all that kind of stuff. One boy, his dad was into, into cutters and his brother was into cutters and the other boy, he was into uh, roping type of horses. Well, the biggest name in the quarter horse business at that time was Matlock Rose. So here I am, I'm two hours down the road every chance that I got a weekend off to go ahead and uh, go be around Matlock Rose. You know, we were young boys and we looked up to him and, and went to go see what his program was about and try to learn something and so on and so forth. And uh, we'd drive up there all the weekends that we could and I spent a lot of time. So anyway, I met Locke at that time. And of course, when we went to shoeing school at that time, Al Pinson used to say, if we catch you uh, shoeing a horse outside of school or trimming a horse or working on a horse, you're gonna get kicked out of school. They didn't want you to do that. Well, every time we go up to Matlock's, when he found out that we was in horseshoeing school, he'd say, can I get you guys to trim some horses? Well, we didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it, but I didn't do it because I thought, well, he might have some kind of connection down there with a horseshoeing school and he's going to go ahead and tell Al that we've done this and we'd probably get kicked out of school. Well, you know, I didn't want to go ahead and do what I wasn't supposed to do and, and, and lose my position. So anyway, we turned it down all the time. Later on, when I started shooing the World Show, the first year that I shot the World Show in about 1982, Matlock came in there one year with a, uh, with a yearling colt and he pulled a shoe off in the trailer. So uh, he brought me, he come down there where we shot out front and, and uh, wanted to know if I could go ahead and put a shoe on. Sure, go get me the horse and bring it back over. I wasn't busy, he brought it back over. I don't know, Lee was there, but I don't know, he was off wherever. And uh, so he brought me over the horse. I straightened the shoe out and nailed it back on and dressed the foot all down. Well, my job had a little bit more polish on it than the foot over there. I didn't send him out of there to where one foot uh, didn't have the same finish job as mine. And I turned around and picked the other foot up and cleaned it up and polished it up to the to where the two front feet looked the same, to where we got a pair instead of two oddballs. He says to me, he says, young man, he says, you're going to go somewhere in this world. He says, in the horse of the world, he says, uh, he says, ain't many boys that have done that. And he gave me a $20 tip. At that time, I was probably putting a shoe on for about $10, you know, it was a big deal. 
So I think it's uh, I think it's one of those things that uh, you just pay attention to stuff. You know, if the two front feet are pairs and the two hind feet are pairs, we're going to go ahead and have something that uh, that's going to go ahead and and be accepted by the public. You know, pretty sales. I don't care what it is. Pretty will steal more than than uh, you take a pretty girl and she walks down the street and you're uh, like women. You're going to go ahead and think, oh wow, she's. She's pretty, she's nice, and everybody has a different idea of pretty, of course, but you're liable to walk up there to her, and uh, she's liable to look real pretty on the outside, but turn around and have a bad personality, and then all of a sudden, pretty isn't pretty anymore. And it it sounds like, too, your pretty is what sells, but to keep those clients is what you're talking about, the attention to detail and, and commitment. Exactly, exactly. And soundness. Soundness is the biggest thing. You're going, out, going ahead and being able to recognize whether we've got a horse a little bit too close or he's sin sold or this or that, the other thing. It's being able to understand feet. And the longer you're in the business, the more you're going to understand it if you pay attention to it. And if you got something you don't understand, you don't take the time to figure it out yourself. And that's a lot of it right there. It's going ahead and figuring it out yourself. I came up through an error to where you had to do that. What's an example related to soundness of something you had to figure out? Well, if you uh, if you get involved in a, uh, it's all the basics. It all falls falls back on basic horseshoeing. It all comes back to balance. It all goes ahead and and if you get to shoeing a lot of horse show horses, you're going to end up. The reason I started shoeing horse shows on a regular basis, like the Congress and whatnot, is because all I did is a lot of quarter horses. So every week you have a certain set of people that you got to take care of. If their deal falls at the Congress, originally when the Congress started it, it was a four-day horse show. Of course, that started back around 1967, I think, or somewhere thereabouts, or 64, I forget exactly. I was overseas at the time. But when I finally got involved with the, uh, with the Congress, it, was, uh, it had already been in process for five or six years, whatever the case may be. And when I started shooting at the Congress, which is a year after the first year I went there, the first year I went there, I went there to take some horses out and see it and see what it was all about and so on and so forth. And uh, when I saw what the shooting part of it was, then all of a sudden it was uh, something that I wanted to be involved in. When you go there, the horses that are brought to you, they've, they've got some kind of problems, usually you got to figure it out, you know, whether they're cut too short or whether the wall has been raped or uh, their uh, feet are in the wrong position. A lot of times they'll bring you a horse that uh, has got a problem and you can easily go ahead and pull the rabbit out of the hat, but there's a lot of times they'll bring you a horse that you can't even get a hold of his ears. You're lucky if you can go ahead and get a hold of the hair to pull that rabbit out of the hat. So it's all learning on how to go ahead and, and create a horse, whether you got to do it through uh, pads, uh, whether you got a sole relief, and a lot of it all comes out of the trim job. You got to pay attention to the trim job. The trim job is the key to all of it. We talked about that a little bit yesterday, the demands of when you want to start working with those high-end clients and how the expectations can be different versus, say, a backyard client. How do you manage that and try to build a business around different types of clients or different clients trying to pull at you at the same time? Little by little by little, I don't care what you do in life, you're 
either going to build up a reputation with certain people and people talk. Let's, let's give you another scenario. I've, I've, I have a horse that comes in that belongs to, to uh, a client of yours and you're a horse sure. They send me the horse and I know you as a, as a friend. They send me a horse over because you're not at the horse show and I put a shoe on for you or I do something for you, whatever the case may be. If it isn't a big job, if it's no more than tacking a shoe back on for somebody because they lost a shoe and, and I know you from wherever you are, they say how much they'll owe you, I'm liable to say, hey, that's all right. Tell John over there I've done a good job for him or tell, uh, tell Jeremy I did him a favor. People that are in the, in the horse show are one, one big family. It's like the AFA, it's one big family. Everybody somehow eventually goes ahead and gets to know everybody. That kind of word goes ahead and circulates. It circulates among the, geez, I took a horse over to so-and-so and he shot my horse for, for put a shoe on for nothing. The next horse that comes in there, I might not know the horseshoe or one thing or another. Well, I still got to make money, so I put the shoe back on it. I don't overcharge somebody just because I'm at a horse show. I'd be reasonable. I'd be fair with them. You know, if it's a big job, well, then all of a sudden it's liable to be some kind of a money-making job. Maybe you have to go ahead and, uh, and uh, cosmetically go ahead and fill it in to make it look good. The foot's been all broke up and whatnot, so you're into a more involved job. If it's something that's just simple of uh, leveling out a shoe and knocking a shoe back on, hey, you can throw somebody a bone, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's just good business practices. You're in a service industry. You're there to service people. You're there to have some compassion. There's times where you don't have the compassion and so on and so forth. I think compassion goes a long ways when you're in the service industry. How do you balance compassion, have compassion, but not let that get in the way of being a smart business person? It's a fine line. It comes down to, uh, you know, you watch some young kid come up here that's had a, you know, just got a horse and they don't have a lot of money and this and that and the other thing. If you're in the business long enough, you kind of know who's what and one thing. Another somebody comes up and it's a young, young kid that needs some help. Well, you help them out and hey, you don't, you don't take advantage of them. You know, it's not that you don't do it for free, but you be uh, compatible. You know, Joe Chris years ago, I used to. One day we were at a uh, uh, board meeting and one thing another, and somehow. I was shoeing horses in an area, and, uh, and this lady says to me, she says, guys, she says, Joe goes ahead and does this horse across the street, and he gets $75 to do that horse over there. This lady across the street over here, he shot that horse and only charged her 25 How do you go ahead and keep the lady on this side of the street from not communicating with the lady on the other side of the street? He charged her $75 because she can afford it. This lady over here can't afford $75. He charged her $25. You know what Joe says? He says, I tell the lady on the other side of the street that the lady on the other side of the street went ahead and helped pay for her horseshoe, but don't tell her that. Keep it to yourself. That's an interesting part of the business, though. Of it is, and you talked about it earlier. It is a small world. People do talk, and managing that, you know, sometimes that conversation can be, or usually is, out of your control. 
Uh, one of the people you mentioned too was uh, Lee Lyles. You know, Lee's past. Uh, what, what were some of the things you learned from Lee? Lee was really a, a genius in a lot of different ways. He was genius as far as uh, I don't think I ever been around anybody that could, could take him watch somebody else do something and come up with some kind of an idea to help them as far as some kind of a uh, machinery or uh, a, a change of way of doing something or one thing and I think that was one of my his attractions to me he was more attracted to me probably in the beginning than I was to him and Lee would call me up and beg me to go ahead and do the uh, world show with him that's actually how I started doing the world show and uh, and of course I had my own route and I used to go to the Congress, take care of my clients and, and shoe the Congress and then go back home and take care of my business at home and he'd call me every day just about, God, can I get you to do the world show? Can I get you to do the world show? And finally we got to a financial part of it and he just watched me help a lot of horses and I think he learned as much from me as I learned from him. Yeah. I know some would be colorful. Uh, what's your business look like today? Doesn't look like much because I've just gone through a hip surgery and I've gone through uh, two cataract surgeries. My hip surgery was uh, was a situation that uh, should have been all healed up within uh, uh, a month, three weeks to a month, and uh, I was still struggling with it up until probably uh, the last month. I uh, ended up with uh, with a broken leg back in 1978. Uh, Lee Lyles broke his leg in 78. Uh, Bruce Daniels broke his leg in 78, all within two weeks of one another. And uh, me, I ended up with a full leg cast on. And when I ended up with a full leg cast on, I broke my leg on a Saturday, went into the hospital, and uh, they were... Uh, going to go ahead and have the doctor go ahead and uh, take the cast off on Monday because they thought they were going to have to pin a bone together in there. Everything set up perfect in the full leg cast and the doctor looked at it on Monday and he said, we're going to leave it right there. He says, come back in, uh, in a couple of weeks and we'll x-ray it again to make sure everything stayed the way it was. Well, uh, two days after I got out of the hospital, I was back to taking care of clients on a set of crutches. I made horseshoes. I had a, I had a daughter that was uh, two years old. I had a wife to support. I had a house and blah, 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 like everybody else. Did I have a cushion? Yeah, I had a little bit of cushion saved up, but I didn't want to go ahead and spend my cushion. So due to the fact that I uh, was connected with uh, different guys through our organization, Eddie Strain came and helped me, Mikey Weaver helped me, John Jenks came and helped me uh, with my clients and I'd go ahead and make horseshoes and they'd do, they'd do the floor and I'd do the forge and uh, for about two weeks I did it off of crutches and uh, you know would set the crutches away and just stand there on one leg and uh, just went about it you know just say hey, I've got to make a living what are you going to do? Never thought that much about it. For Two months, I went ahead and had a full leg cast on. Well, when you get when you throw the crutches aside and you're not using the crutches anymore, it's got one of them little balls on the bottom of it. You learn how to walk off of that, and so on and so forth. But you're walking to where you're swinging your leg out like this because you can't bend your knee and walk like you normally would. 
I believe that that probably is what originally started the, because uh, I'd come home at the end of the day and God, my hip would be hurting in one thing or another because you're using it in a different way than you ever should. So I think that probably originated the start of me having a bad hip and then from shoeing a lot of hauler horses and of course quarter horses are tight. You just stand there and take it and put up with it and go on and it's, you're getting your body torqued this way and that way over the years and it just it wears, it wears you out, that's all. That sounds like that's a good piece of advice for people starting out today. Be mindful of the important tool that you have, your body. Absolutely. The most important part you have, of course, I always tried to stay fit. I always was tight in the stomach and so on and so forth. And I used to stress that to guys all the while because that goes ahead and helps on your back. So now I sit on the fence. Do I, uh, do I go back to shoeing horses? I've got people that want me to go ahead and shoe horses. This is probably the first time in the last 50 years that I get up in the morning and, I, and I'm not hurting somewhere, whether it be your wrist, your ankles, your back, your, your whatever, just from working all day long. You know, it's a, it's a stressful job. This year you got into the International Horseshoeing Hall of Fame, and you look back over your career, what, what are you most proud of? Probably that. I look at that as a very humbling honor to, to think that we've got an organization that uh, I've got my peers that think enough of me to go ahead and say, I want you to be aboard with us. I look at I look at the business and I turn around and say, God, this guy over here is as much deserving than I am or he's more deserving than I am and so on and so forth. There's a lot, there's a lot of deserving people out there that may need to be in there, but because of the way it works, it, uh, it isn't that easy to go ahead and get in. Now, uh, I talked to Jim Keith right after I got in. I called him up to thank him if he was a part of it, if he had any part of it. He said, yeah, he says, I, uh, I would put you into it. He said, but I'm going to give you something to think about. He says, you ought to be really, really honored this year. I said, well, why is that? He says, well, he says, when I got put in the Hall of Fame, he says they only had eight nominees. He says this year, he said they had over a hundred and 50 or 60, I think it was. He says, so for you to go ahead and get chosen out of 100 and whatever the exact figure was, he said, you should feel very, very blessed. And I do, I feel very blessed. The man upstairs was looking out for me. I'd like to thank Terry for sitting down and joining me for this episode. And as I mentioned in the beginning, we spoke at the AFA convention. After we chatted, we were walking down the hall to another lecture and kind of continued this chat. I think Terry brought up some great points during this walk and really got into what he sees as the bigger picture for horseshoeing. This stuck with me, so I called Terry afterward and finished the discussion, which is an upcoming episode in this podcast series. Stay tuned for that. I think you'll get a lot more from Terry by listening to it. So until then, thank you for listening.